Welcome to WeAreTechnology.com's User-Friendly 2.0 with host Bill Sickens, Technology Architect. And this is User-Friendly 2.0. I'm your host, Bill Sickens. Bill Gretchen, welcome to this week's show. Hello. Hello there. A couple of things going on. The Black Hat Conference is wrapping up. We're going to be talking about that a little bit in the news. and We're going to have some coverage from that on next week's show. So it's going to be interesting to see what comes out of that this year. Our guest this week is going to be talking about white label software. And what that is, is software that you would buy, that you would incorporate into your website. Obviously, this would be you being a business that does some application, but it's made to look and feel like it's actually coming from you. And this happens a lot uh, in many different cases. So they're a company that has a good system that's been put together that uh, works in the lending industry. So we're going to get to hear about that. and. Uh, talk a little bit more about how all of those type of things work. So that'll be coming up in the second half of the show. Alrighty, so this week, like I said, it's Black Hat Cybersecurity Conference. Hacking is a big thing in the news. Just found out this week that the Oregon Health Plan was hacked. So anybody that's on Medicaid in Oregon, their identities out there. So these kind of conferences do tend to bring together people that are trying trying, being the operative word, keep things secure. All righty, with no further ado, let's go to the news. Know anyone with an outdated business photo? Zing Studio Sherwood is a full-service portrait studio offering headshots and portraits to the Sherwood community and beyond, specializing in bringing out the best in every subject. Zing Studio Sherwood, let's celebrate what makes you extraordinary. Zing Sherwood. So what's in the news? iPhone 15 rumors are rampant. So it's coming out next month in September. They are going to officially announce the next version of the iPhones. Usually happens about once a year in September. So we're right on schedule for that. And a few things that they're talking about changing on this, they're actually going to have a two terabyte option for memory. So which... Sounds like a lot. I know, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I remember when a t- one terabyte was like this major deal. So. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. But, but you figure the phone will natively record things like 4K, 30 frames per second. And from that standpoint, you know, that in of itself takes up a lot of memory. So depending on what you're doing with it, the higher memory might be something that you find useful. One of the other changes that it looks like they're going to be making this year is they're getting rid of the mute button and replacing it with something called an action button. So for anybody that doesn't know what this is, there's a button on the side of the iPhone that allows you to switch between vibrate, basically, and regular alarms. And when you have it muted, the phone vibrates, you would still get an alarm like from a timer or something in the normal way. And this has been on the iPhone, as far as I can tell, from the first version. So making this change is actually kind of a big deal in that respect. and. The action button will allow it to do a number of other things as well as that. So it's going to be a little bit of a learning curve there. And since when changes like this happen, it seems to be a good course of people that get upset about them. We'll have to see where this will come in. Price point, they're expecting the new iPhone to be $1599 like this year's model was. That's $1,599. They are talking about a version that would be something like a light version. They probably use a different name for that that um, would be 256 gigabyte that would cost less. And whether they're going to charge more for the two terabytes over one of storage is also yet to be seen. 
2023 domestic box office surges past $6 billion this weekend due to Barbie, Oppenheimer, Turtles, and Meg 2 as the strike continues. So has anybody seen any of these movies yet? No. no. I actually would have liked to have seen a couple of them. Yeah, I might too. I haven't had time to get out there. Definitely Turtles being one of them. I hear Barbie is supposed to... There's a lot of people that like it, and it's made about a billion on its own so far, so... That's a nice little take, you know? Yeah, and I, I think um, I would have been and, interested in Barbie and Oppenheimer, to tell you the truth. I'm not sure what Meg 2 yeah. is. Do you know what it is? I think it's a shark movie. Oh. Oh. Oh, okay. No, I wouldn't be interested in that. <laughs> I have to check some of them out. I just you know if any of our listeners, tell us what you think about all this stuff coming out. I, uh, I just haven't had a chance to get to it. Barbie seemed a little, I don't know... Um, if I'd like it or not, but it might just not be my thing. I've always liked turtles. So we'll have to see. <laughs> oh, in any event, at least people are going to the theater again. And it does seem like, uh, like that's back. I know the drive in here has been really, really busy. So that's been pretty cool. Yeah. So, um, what, what do you think is next on the news? Um, well, I don't know. You know, it's a Sweet. a very, very good question. And the news changes a lot. Yeah. yeah. So you never quite know if you're going to be up to date or, or not. But I don't know. What's next on our news? Well, um, it looks like scientists discover unprecedented high energy light coming from the sun. So what do you think that means? Yeah. So the Wow. Well, uh, <laughs> the way this day has been going, I'm not quite sure. Oh, my goodness. Um, what they're talking about here is that the sun is sending kinds of light, specifically in this case, gamma rays, with energies that are higher than what have ever been measured before. Now, it doesn't pose a problem to us. The atmosphere deals with that. And, you know, as far as that goes, it's interesting to see because, the, you know, we think we know a lot about our stuff that's close by and all the rest of that. And uh, turns out that the more we know, the less we know, you know, sometimes if that makes sense yep. and the agreements out there, uh, quote from a, uh, a postdoctoral research associate that worked on this study saying that the sun is more surprising than we knew. We thought we had this star figured out, but that's not the case. Now, are we sure it's not one of those things where we just have more capable uh, instruments to read these setting or these energy outputs? That's a good point. No, we're we're not sure that that's the case. In fact, it's very likely that a lot of what we're seeing now is due to the fact that we have better instruments and better telescopes and better everything else that's able to pick things up that we couldn't see not so long ago. The new, um, you, you know, the a number of the new different things that they're putting out there are much, much more sensitive. And there's been a lot of research into sensor technology that can pick these things up that didn't exist before either. Okay. Now, on a completely different note, does anyone care about crypto anymore? <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, not really, but I didn't in the first yeah, place. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. You know, that's a good question. I mean, you know, we still see news about it out there and everything. And in back in 2022, the values of most of the cryptocurrencies just crashed. And... Coinbase transaction volume right now is down 70% from last year. So, you know, in answer to the question, does anyone care about crypto? I'm sure there are people out there that still do, but not in the way of the crypto craze 
that was going on before. And there's a couple of things feeding into this. The first one being that a lot of people lost a lot of money. And we've talked <laughs> about that in the past and it's happened and it's come back a little bit like Bitcoin and that type of thing. It's off of its lows, but it's certainly nowhere near where it was. The other thing is, is the SEC is filing a lawsuit to try to get regulation on this stuff, wanting it in some cases to be regulated the same way that a, a stock or things like that would be. And that's also reining things in a little bit as well. So the volatility, I think the newness of it is starting to wear off. I mean, it's still definitely out there. Um, as time goes by, there was a lot more places accepting cryptocurrency for purchases. I noticed that slowed down too. Uh, some have even quietly dropped it. <laughs> so, you know, as far as these things go, I don't know if this is a fad. I've always thought that there's probably a place for this but not in the way that it was being done and uh, certainly not in the values that it was being done. Black Hat Technology Conference wraps up in Vegas. So next week, we're going to have some great information coming out of that interviews and whatnot. And for anybody that doesn't know what the Black Hat Technology Conference is, this is an event that's held every year. There's actually a couple of them around the world. The one that we're covering is the uh, one that's uh, in Las Vegas. So that's the one that's closest to us. And basically, it's a place where hackers, along with companies that are trying to do cybersecurity and various technologies related to that work and meet. And this is a type of show where you do want to know what you're doing if you go to it. The badge is number one or something that's very popular to hack. In other words, the badge that you carry with you to get you into the show has an electronic component. So people try to get to that. There is a wall that has all the names of people that have been successfully hacked at the conference. One of the key ways they do that is you have a conference Wi-Fi that's what you use to get online when you're there, and you have a number of different people that spoof it. So if you go onto their Wi-Fi, they download all the information on your phone, laptop, tablet, that type of a thing. My advice is don't go in with a piece of electronic that you care about or that has any private information on it. Now, I will say from another standpoint, it's fun to hack the hackers. <laughs> we'll get into a little more detail on that next week. Beijing superconductor levitation video author admits that it was fraud and takes the video down. This would have been so cool had it been real. <laughs> I, I mean, imagine. it just would have been. So what this was basically is uh, this came out of China and it was this article that showed basically the ability to live levitate. And, um, you know, like Star Wars or something. Hmm. But unfortunately, it didn't actually happen. And the claim now is being made that he put this video up to attract attention. Well, it certainly did that, Plunge. but not quite in the way <laughs> that I think uh, I think it was meant. <laughs> now, was it supposed to be humorous you know, or was it supposed to be like he was trying to convince people? Um, the, in my opinion, after reading through it, I think it was put up like it was supposed to convince people. Ah. Uh, first room temperature superconductor. This type of technology, you know, this is almost Star Wars, like it's a different uh, method, but like anti-grab, that kind of idea. Uh -huh. And uh, we have things floating around and all kinds of stuff that would be really, really cool. I'd love that. And I think a lot of people would. Um you know, strange matter and quantum physics, which is where all this kind of stuff comes from. And it should actually be possible, but um, at least not so far, at least not at this university, even though the claim was there that it was. And it started out with an article that was posted on their server and then a um, 
uh, tweet uh, or X or whatever it is today that was put out on social media um, that talked about it that caused a lot of attention. Because again, had it been real, it would have been a very big deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. As writers strike uh, nears 100 day mark, a potential deal with Hollywood Studios is nowhere in sight. Yeah, there was some hope last Friday. Last uh, this would have been a week ago, Friday. Yeah, that they were going to sit down at the table and you know maybe be able to flesh this out a little bit, but unfortunately, it does not look like anything has happened that would show a conclusion of this. And on the same note, SAG is still on strike uh, for the same thing, and. Uh, Basically, what it comes down to is pay, of course, which is, you know, again, behind most of this. And we've talked about this more in depth. But one of the key things is that the studios would like the ability to pay an actor for his or her likeness for one day, scan it, and then be able to use AI to do whatever they wanted with the image. And and, um, that just, yeah, seems like I can see where there's there's an issue there, you know? So, yeah. So we'll see where this goes. As far as how long these strikes are going to go, I don't know. I've heard rumors that they're expecting that it could even go into next year. Oh, wow. uh, At least for SAG. Okay. So the Writers Guild, um, I haven't really, there were some projections on that. And I noticed everybody that was making guesses no longer is making guesses. So I think it's safe to say that we really don't know. And um, see where all of this is going to end up. Writers are such an important part of all of this, too. And I can see, you know, again, you, you have to be able to make a living at you, what you do. And if your chosen profession can be replaced easily by other things that aren't as good, but maybe will get from point A to point B, certainly the people paying the bills are going to look at doing that from time to time. And what it does is it creates a in- situation where an entire industry could be out of work. Yeah, I, I can relate to that. I, I used to do website construction. And then in order to do the website construction, all of a sudden you had to be a programmer and a graphic artist. Mm-hmm. Yep. yep. <laughs> it's like, well, I wasn't all three of those things. I was the organizer. And um, so I understand where they're coming from. It's a, it's a legitimate concern. Yeah. And it's important. The other thing of it is too, is that the reality is, is when you cut corners, it does seem like, uh, you know, there is a difference. And so the quality is affected to it. So there's an old meme that was out there for a while that uh, it's basically, it shows a picture of this beautiful stair rail with this hand carved uh, image of a horse, something that you would have in a very opulent place and that type of thing. And then the caption reads, well, can you do it cheaper? And the artist is like, yes. And then the lower part of the meme shows a duct taped image of a horse that's made out of plastic that's duct taped to this you know stair rail they both do the same thing but (laughs) at the end of the day there's a huge difference you know so we'll see what comes of it and uh but it doesn't look like this is going to wrap up anytime soon so we'll see what happens and you know you never know with these things we record a couple of days before we air so you know it could go the other way too i don't know but uh we'll certainly keep on top of that so we haven't done a Q&A on the show in a while. Um, back before we had our format change, it kind of fit into the middle segment a little better. And I noticed we haven't really been circling back to that. So I figured we'd hit upon that a little bit this week. And one of the key questions coming in, frustrations, uh, it might be a better word for this that people are asking is, have we gone from a standpoint where our phones augment to what we do to a point where we're forced to have them? And if so, 
the other part of that is, is this a good thing? So I'm kind of paraphrasing a whole bunch of stuff that's come in over the last little bit together. And what this comes down to is stuff like you have to use the phone app. Now, I, I so I'm going to give one example of this that I ran into, and I think this kind of sums it up for me as I went through the drive through at Burger King. Okay. And I don't do fast food a lot anymore, but I did here and I wanted to order a Whopper. And the thing came to over $8 for a Whopper. Now, I know that prices have gone up and all that kind of stuff, but I finally asked the question afterwards. Well, if you order with your app, then you get a discount. Well, I don't go to Burger King a lot, and I certainly wasn't going to take the time to pull over, try to download an app. I didn't know I needed to anyway. And, uh, yeah, you know, I know it's, a, it's an option, but not the case. So now you're paying almost twice as much as you would if you had the app. And the same thing goes for most of the other fast food restaurants, McDonald's, Wendy's, and so on do the same thing. And it's not limited to that. Uh, we see it when we're doing things like hardware setup, another example for your network, uh, Ring or Linksys, any of these things have this where if you want to set it up, you can't use the computer. You have to use a mobile device and do it from the app. That's the only way it'll work. Well, I had a situation um, with CVS, the uh, pharmacy store. Yes. Where um, uh, it wasn't busy and there I was patiently waiting for um, the lady to get done with the person in front of me. And uh, she tells me, oh, well, you can use the app. Okay. And I'm just kind of like, well, you know, I, I didn't say anything rude or anything. I, I didn't really want to use the app. I was picking something up for my mom. So I didn't want to sit there and download an app and do all this stuff in the store when I didn't want to. It was so much easier just to patiently wait for her to be done with the guy in front of me. And then when I didn't go and download the app, the lady got like kind of weird with me. And then she made the other um, person in the pharmacy finish doing, uh, taking care of my, my, my order. And it made me feel right. really uncomfortable. And yeah. the thing is, is that not everybody has a smartphone. Not everybody feels comfortable, you know, using it all the time. Um, if she had done this to my mom, my mom doesn't take her phone with her and she is not skilled enough to use it. Um, <laughs> so it, it, it was, it really, and I had such good luck at that CVS and um, this was really disappointing. Yeah. I mean, I got to say for myself, it's more of a social need. You know, the expectation that I have my phone with me all the time for things. Mm -hmm. But I mean, there are those yeah, couple of, you know, two factor authentication things, but I, I don't deal with apps that much on other things. But I don't know if that's just because of diet or what for me. Actually, you know, the comment you made there, Bill, and this is something I've run into before, and I actually kind of got into a fight, like an actual, not a physical altercation, but certainly a verbal one about a year ago with somebody over that is I turn my phone off when I don't want to take phone calls, like, you know, when I'm sleeping or if I'm busy <laughs> or, you know, that kind of thing. And I had this individual that was starting to get very angry with me because I didn't have my phone on. Jeez. And it's like, you know what? It's not required. <laughs> yeah. 
And, um, you know, so from that standpoint, you know, again, that kind of plays into these, some of the questions that we're getting is, you know, has it been, been required? I know something I've harped on in the past, but it's one of the reasons for it is Android Auto and uh, the uh, Google Car or uh, Apple CarPlay. It's like all of a sudden we're in a situation here now, if I want my car to work completely, I have to have a phone. And I don't want to be in that kind of a situation, you know. It's fine if it augments it. It's fine if it's an extra feature that's there to use, and that's great. But one of the other stories that kind of goes along with this, and I noticed it's disappeared, was the um, hotel booking site, Hotels.com. And when they were originally started, you would go to their website, and then they had an app that came out a few years later, and then you could go through and book on the app or through their website. Okay, fine. Well, they tried to implement this thing that if you were to want to redeem your um, rewards, you got free hotel nights at the time. They've changed a little bit since then, but you, you would get these things where you ended up with a free hotel night. If you wanted to redeem that, there was a $5 surcharge if you did it not on the app, like on the computer. That's crazy. Uh, and it's like, uh, why? You know, why are you doing that? Yeah. And um People didn't react well to that either, and it seems like that uh, decision has been backed out. At least I don't see that fee there anymore, and there doesn't seem to be anything about it on their system anymore. See, I think apps yeah, should be just something that's if somebody's if it's more convenient for them. I don't yeah. think it should be shoved down somebody's throat, you know. And that's the whole thing. And there's sort of situations apps do have more access to the sensors in the phone. And some things like that. So there's some situations where you can do more with an app than you can with installed or a, like web-based software, that type of a thing. But that isn't the case in a lot of these situations, like ordering at a restaurant. Uh, the phone's not going to do anything extra. I mean, you can get location information, all the basics from a computer or a phone. So there isn't really a reason to it. So you can no longer go up to the drive-thru and just order without paying a surcharge for doing it. Jeez. And it's, you know, it's like, what's the point of that? So. I don't know if this is really answering that question any more than to kind of, you know, to wrap it up a little bit. Yes, it does seem like we are being forced to use apps as opposed to other things for a variety of different things. And is it a good thing? Well, in my opinion, no, I don't think it makes sense to uh, to require it. You should see some of the reactions I get when I go some places and I just, uh, well, uh, what's your you know phone number, email address? So I don't use phone or email. It's against my religion. <laughs> And they're staring at me. It's like, well, how are we going to do business? Well, I don't know. I want to buy this item. I can't do that without a phone or an email address, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, and the the wildest one was I was test driving a car at this place that was trying to shove Android Auto down my throat. And the guy's going to show me how good it is. So we're driving and I knew this was going to happen. So I had grabbed an old flip phone that I had in a drawer before I went for the test driving. He goes, okay, let me see your phone and I'll show you how it works. So I hand it to him. And the guy did not know how to respond. I thought he was going to start drooling or something. It was just like he was staring at me like, what's this? Well, that's my phone. Why did you want my phone? Do you need to call somebody? You know. <laughs> anyway, this is User Friendly 2.0. We'll be back after the break. <laughs> Welcome back. This is User Friendly 2.0. Check out our website, userfriendlyshow.com. That's the place to go to find all of our back episodes, play the podcast, look at our Tech Wednesday, 
read the articles, which we haven't done in a while and need to a little bit more. <laughs> Does that fall and under pick- the writer's strike thing, though? Yeah, I, I feel like it, you know. it's. Uh, <laughs> well, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But anyway, userfriendlyshow.com. And the one thing that you really can do there, and please keep them coming in as your questions, story ideas, any of that stuff, it really helps out because that's how we do our programming. So we're going to have an interview coming up here in a little bit with Fuse Software. And what that's going to be about is a product that they offer that is a white label program. Now, um, for anybody that's not familiar with that term, it's a lot of products are made this way, not just computer software, where there's a company that manufactures, say, product A, like a bottle of ketchup or something. And then they will have contracts with different stores. So if it's Costco, it's going to say Kirkland. If it's Kroger, it's going to say, you know, whatever Kroger's brand is and so on. But it's actually one company that's manufacturing all this stuff and just putting labels from different companies on it. Okay. Well, that's kind of interesting. So if yeah. you like similar brands, um, then it's maybe you're liking the exact same thing. That's that's very possible. And sometimes so... they're also a national brand too, you know? Okay, so, so, it's, just, so it's like the, the stuff that Walmart gets in. Got it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, and that's exactly what it would be. It's the, you know, store brand, but it's, you know, Walmart does not manufacture farm mm. or any of that stuff, the food that they sell, even if it's under their own label and neither do, neither do most of these other places. And the computer software, the same thing is, is, is the case. And in a lot of cases, uh, speaking to the computer software end of it, this actually makes for a much better product because you can have one company that specializes in a specific area and has the resources, time, and expertise to be able to go through, make the thing run perfectly, keep it secure, know what they're doing with that, and they license it out to other companies that are able to put their name on it. But what's actually happening is the engine coming from this one place. Fuse Software is one such thing. They do software for the lending, banking, lending industry, and that type of a thing. So if you're applying for a credit card or a home loan or something from, say, Bank A or Bank B or whatever, it actually is probably going through the same actual software to do the process. And they've been able to come up with some very unique things in there that allow them to offer specific stuff that would cost a lot of money to do it in-house. And one of the other things I know with these kinds of programs, too, is a lot of companies that use them actually did try it one time to do it on their own and figure out that this piece of it's a little bit better bought by someone that's an expert and actually knows what they're doing and how they're doing it. That makes sense. So this is like uh, game engines. Exactly. Uh, Game engines would be another idea. You're building around it. Now, the difference being is the game engine, the game company is usually still building a product of their own around the actual engine that makes the thing work. In the case of like the lending software, when you get in and apply for the loan, it's their software, it's just they've customized what it looks like around it a little oh, bit. Okay. So you could even use something like Skywalker Sound. And just because it's Warner Brothers or Disney or or 20th Century Fox, they might still use Skywalker Sound to do yeah, that aspect because they're experts. Well, if, they use, if they use their technology and that type of thing, that would be similar. So in that case, you're talking maybe Codex or encryption technology, you know, DRM, that type of a thing, where, yeah, it looks and feels like it's coming from somewhere else, but it's actually, you know, one company that's the expert that just does that piece of that given product. So with that, let's go ahead and go to our interview. Uh, Like I say, this is a little bit interesting. We'll be back in just a minute. 
Joining me now is my guest, Andres Clara, co-founder of Fuse. Welcome to the show. Hi, Bill. Thanks for having me. Well, there we go. I, you know, got the sound effects and everything. <laughs> so on that note, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, give us the 411 on your company. Absolutely. So I'm one of the co-founders of Fuse. Uh, Fuse is a, is a company providing software to financial institutions in essence, really operating system that enables banks, credit unions, finance companies to originate loans. Um, so in essence, every time you apply for a loan, that entire orchestration of software that application, all those workflows, and ultimately that decision uh, happens within uh, within the, the solution that we've uh, generated for our partners. I started this business two years ago uh, with, a, with, a, with, a, with a former classmate from Harvard that I met eight years ago. Before that, I was an investor in tech and business services. Uh, my, my passion for finance it goes even beyond that. Uh, I started as a banker in uh, in New York City, uh, and then kind of uh, went into the investment investing world. So your software is something that if you went through your lender or financial institution, it would look like and be branded like their bank or whatever, right? But it's actually your software that's doing the heavy lifting. Absolutely. It's completely white label. You will never find out. We're, we're like very entrenched in, into like the, the operating systems of banks. So you, you, we're one of those companies that you probably would have never heard of. Right, but that actually does all the work. It seems like most of us sometimes. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It's a utility player. So how long did it take you guys to put this together and what was involved? Well, we actually started uh, selling loans. So we were uh, more of a lead generator uh, for banks. Uh, and at, at some point, the, the lenders approached us and they were, guys, uh, it's, it, it's fascinating how well the, the loan packages that you're sending us are coming, everything is digital. Out of curiosity, what type of vendors are you utilizing to do all of this? And we told them, well, actually, we have built this uh, internally. And then it became unanimous the desire that they had to buy software from us as opposed to buying loans. So we made the decision to become a business-to-business business, uh, firm instead of a business direct-to-consumer brand, right? So we went from selling loans to selling technology. So what did it take to, did you just hire some programmers and sit down and write a process one day? I know you already knew the business, so yeah. that part of it you had, but there was, had to have been some technical uh, onboarding, I would think, right? Absolutely. So my co-founder is highly technical, right? So we envisioned together what, what the process should look like and we automate it end to end, right? Like, so most lenders do not have uh, auto decision, right? Like some, at least some portion of their, their, their approval process will involve having a call center or someone that reviews an application. And we came in with fresh eyes and we thought to ourselves, how can we make the, the, the cost of application the lowest possible in the industry, right? So. We thought, what are the barriers for this to be completely automatic, right? So we kind of went step by step, looked at what are the regulatory compliance, what are the kind of like the technological barriers that, that exist, and what are kind of like the marketing elements too, right? Like humans help in the process of convincing someone uh, to apply for a loan, but you need to decide in what portions of that funnel, and, and depending on the type of credit product you want to kind of help uh, uh, 
put uh, people to actually like facilitate the conversion of that customer. So we became students of the process, both the technical, the, the regulatory, and also the human element of lending in such a way that we kind of ensured conversion was the highest and, and, and the cost of doing so was the lowest versus the incumbents. I'll bet you the borrowers like that too, because they're not having to go through as much either because they're not having to talk to somebody and go through that piece of it. I know in the past when I've done loans, and I know exactly what you're saying, not from your end, but from, from the borrower's end, has been that you go on, you fill out some stuff online, and then usually there's a second part of the process where half the time they ask you the same questions again. And then, you know, and it feels like you're just kind of going through this, this loop, but you've been able to take that out. So you're saving money for your customer, your clients, but you're also saving time for the borrower. So that seems like a win-win situation. Exactly. So we, we wanted to mirror what we were seeing in other industries, right? Like when you order food, when, when you shop on Amazon, there's, there's nothing more frustrating. And I'm sure you've had this bill that you, you, go on, uh, you go on the call center and they kind of pass you like hot potato and, and, you're, and you keep, oh, keep yeah. asking the same question. What is your social? What is your phone number? What is your address? What's your password? And, and, and the first thing you ask yourself is like, I've told this two or three times already in this call, right? Like, why am I being asked this again? So what we wanted was to eliminate all of that friction, right? It's like, I already know this is the, what are the key identifiable traits uh, from a security standpoint, we should ask someone and, and ensure that that customer uh, has a delightful experience, right? Something that re- replicates what they're having in other categories of, uh, of technology and bringing it to the financial services industry. So I'm going to ask a question. You uh, said a word in your previous comments, security. Has this been something that you found to be an issue? This is a financial product, and it seems yeah. like everybody's trying to hack everybody. Uh, tell us a little bit about that end of it. Well, the stakes are so high that to operate in this industry, it, it's an expensive industry, right? Like your customers, meaning like the, le- the, the lenders that you're utilizing your software, cannot take anything less than excellent, right? Like, so you need, you, you need to get... 100% on every single test, right? Anything below that, you've effectively failed, right? So in order to operate in this space, you need to be compliant with the certain regulatory frameworks. Uh, there's uh, there's ca- categories of tests you need to pass, like one of, which, one of which is known as SOC 2, and there's like categories of that. So we had to get all of that in order for us to first be like ready to go in this industry. So we, we, we put all the investment uh, out of the gates on that, and that we were fortunate enough that we raised plenty of capital from venture, cap- venture capital firms here in the U.S. that enable us to kind of have the wherewithal to um, to go ahead and, and get all those uh, uh, kind of accolades, so to speak. So let's talk a little bit about your actual clientele. You've kind of commented on it, banks and financial institutions. Who specifically do you serve with this? Yeah, uh, we serve mostly uh, financial institutions in the U.S. Um, I would say that the, the vast majority of them are uh, credit unions, finance companies, and and, and banks. Uh, it, our sweet spot in general are more like when you think about a consumer bank, right? Like someone that is uh, issuing credit cards, auto loans, mortgages, uh, home equity loans. Those are kind of the categories of, of, of lenders that are kind of thrive with our software. And it, that's because we usually dissect the market between fast and slow uh, type of processes. I would say that we are champions of the fast processes, and there, but there's certain categories of lending that kind of lend themselves, no pun intended, 
to like slow processes. So the mortgage world, there's certain regulatory frameworks that like that force our customers to actually go slow, right? Like there's certain time you need to wait, there's certain tightening issues. Uh, and, and after the financial crisis, it, it made it in such a way that it's like a, a quasi-cooling period for, for, for decisions to happen. Same, the same thing happens with like high, uh, large ticket commercial lending. Those are usually done by committee. There's a lot of human decisioning. There's an underwriting process that's highly complex. And definitionally, that those processes cannot be instantaneous. Whereas applying for a credit card, I'm sure, Bill, that you're going through the process of applying for a credit card, and some lenders out there are very tech forward, or you probably you got pre-qual or qualified or approved for a credit card within within, within minutes, right? And in some processes, it's, it's a pain, right? It takes some hours, they ask you for a bunch of stuff. What we're trying to eradicate is the latter, right? Like, we want everything to mirror that instant uh, instant approval, instant kind of uh, response, and we're, ha- we're helping our customers get to that port. So let me ask you a question about that end of it too, because and this come actually is kind of a personal question. It's something I just dealt with because I just applied for a credit card for airline miles. I wanted the benefits and went online. It's issued by a major bank and all of that kind of stuff. And, and they approved it. Like you say, it was a very quick process. Then four weeks later, the card stopped working and I had to go into a branch, which they didn't tell me about until after the card stopped working to show my ID. Now, have you run into trouble with stuff like that? Or how do you validate that the person applying is really the person that they say they are? Is there a process where you have to go through and somehow prove your bona fide? Or, you know, it seems like that is really an issue. Yeah, no, fraud and, 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 and things like that are, uh, are like top of mind for us, right? So we're partnered with like top uh, fraud detection tools uh, in such a way that our customers can actually like ensure that like they're offering the best service we are we are the operating system for for all of this kind of uh, startups or already established players to operate in right like we give our we stand for customer choice so if someone wants to work with some of the big uh, the big uh, bureaus to to get this type of software they can get it through uh, they can get it through them but the nice thing about us is that we're kind of the piping right like we are we play Switzerland. We're neutral in what type of software they want to, they want to utilize to do uh, fraud checks, uh, AML, uh, anti-money laundering, AML. All those things, in essence, we're kind of an app store, right? So our our lenders can utilize all a wide wide gamut of uh, of solutions in in such a way that they can feel comfortable that they that they're using like what is best in class. The issue, the, the biggest issue that our incumbents have is they, they usually have one provider of that versus like multiple. So for, uh, having that kind of waterfall of detection enables us to be kind of the, the top, the, the top choice uh, for, for lenders out there. So it sounds like what you're saying is this actually can make it a little more secure than if the bank just tried to do their own in-house solution. I mean, yes, I, I do. I, I do do believe that by virtually using us and utilizing like uh, as many sources as they can, or as, as many like better sources, they can have a, a much better outcome and hopefully at a, at a, at a much lower price point. Okay, yeah, it would seem like it because you have a solution. They don't have to also maintain it or any of that kind of stuff, too. Exactly, exactly. It becomes, I mean, there's a war for talents today, right? So the fact that they don't have to maintain it is huge. Right? The tech that the financial institutions of this country are accumulating because they try to build something themselves and then they just cannot uh, sustain uh, 
the the need to like keep changing things and catch up with technology as it evolves. Yeah, and then they don't, and then you have a product that either doesn't work or is insecure. You know, exactly. which we've seen. I, I mean, you know, that's that's been a big uh, problem with the in-house. So in another little direction of this is uh, you talked about the credit card companies and lenders like, you know, uh, would be for, I guess, like a home loan or a car loan or something like that. And you have one product, but those are at least those are two different, really different things. I mean, they're financial products, but they're not the same kind of thing. How do you deal with that? Are you just, is it a one size fits all or do you have some way to customize per the needs of the client or how would that work? Yeah, no, the problem is highly, uh, our software is highly customizable and self-serve, right? Like, for example, a credit card application process or a personal loan, uh, in general, they are what it's called unsecured uh, loans, right? Meaning there's no collateral. They, 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 there's instances in which they can be, but like most generally they're unsecured loans, right? So the process, uh, the, the, the types of uh, interest that you can charge, the type of disclosure are very different than what you will have for a mortgage. Or cardinal, right? So, and it depends by state. It could even depend by county, depending on the category. So, of loans, right? And then, we don't even get me started about uh, payday loans and all these other categories of credit, right? So, each one of them will have distinct licenses that our lenders have to have, distinct disclosures, distinct uh, rates, the, uh, distinct durations, distinct sizes, and all of that are elements that our customers can actually. Um, and it creates filters in such a way that they don't run, run into one regulatory trouble, but also like not a quali- class qualifying people for products that they're not really uh, applying for, right? So uh, the beauty of our system is it's highly flexible and highly customizable uh, for for our customers to use it in each one of those verticals. And, and, and most importantly, for the non-technical teams to, to do all of this customization instead of being fully dependent on, on engineers as they have to be uh, in, in the current kind of setup of the market. Yeah, let the experts do what the experts do. And I, I mean, it totally makes sense. It's just interesting to see a company like yours that's actually been able to implement this in a way that it is flexible enough to use, but still keep the same core thing going. So is there anything else you want to tell us? Uh, no, I mean, for, for me, like it's, of course, uh, first and foremost, thanks again for having me here. Uh, I, I really think that this type of technology benefits what I call the marginal borrower, right? Like by virtue of lowering the cost of people getting a loan, lenders uh, definitionally cannot can, can say yes to that, that person that today is, uh, gets told no, right? Because banks operate on, on on this premise of like, okay, like I need to make this return of capital. And whatever it doesn't get me that return on capital, aside from the risk and everything, that's that's. But specifically at a very macro level, is if I need to make my object, my desired return on capital is X. Anything below that, I'm probably going to say no to. Right. So if you if you lower the cost of operations uh, for them from a technological standpoint, you serve the mission of that marginal borrower to get that loan. And that when that marginal borrower gets a loan, that's an extra dollar or, or, or 10 or $100, however gets approved, it goes into the economy. It goes into that family's flywheel. And then ultimately it gets a, 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 into much more velocity of money and it enables the, the, our economy to go fa- grow faster. So for us, like, there's a, it, it seems like we're just technology, but there's like a really much higher motive for what, what, what we're doing, what we're doing. 
Well, no, anytime you can lower the cost of doing something and have a better experience, I mean, that's just a positive. And, you know, that's where the, where these type of things go. Well, listen, thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure to have you here. And this is all very interesting. And I know we're going to get some questions coming down the pipe. So hopefully we can have you back sometime down the road and maybe answer some of our listeners' questions. Awesome, Bill. We'll be more than happy to answer that. Great. Thank you. Thank you. You know, again, very interesting things when you think about, especially technology in the software industry, there's a lot of moving parts. And if you do it right, people don't see the moving parts. I mean, that's kind of the goal. And this is a great example of a company that really has done what they do right. And it's helped out a lot, you know, completely across the board. So before we had our format change a while back, we used to close with sometimes talking about things that, you know, we've seen on television or different stuff like that. And one such thing is a movie that I have not seen or even heard of called Alita. Now, Gretchen, Bill, I know you guys have been, you've seen this. So tell us what it is and what you think. Well, Battle Angel Alita is James Cameron making a live action version of an anime that came out. Oh, early nineties, late eighties. Um, very, very well done. You know, a lot yeah, of uh, anime to live actions, I just flat out suck. Terrible. <laughs> Ghost in the Shell is a miserable pile that should never have been made in the first place. Because <laughs> the original material is there, and I don't know why they had to deviate from it so far. But James Cameron, and this is a true thing, he's been wanting to make that movie for decades. And when he made it, he held true to it. Like, you watch the anime, you watch it, you can just see that straight parallels between them. And it's beautiful. What did you think, Gretchen? I really liked it. I was surprised. And um, it was something that Jeremy and I had wanted to see. But whatever happens, you know, sometimes life, you, you, oh, you, you didn't get to see the movie. And then you didn't, we didn't come across it on TV. And I've been, you know, feeling kind of gloomy off and on lately. So I've been watching a lot of movies. Mm-hmm. And, and then I spotted Alita. And I was thinking... Oh, hey, we'd wanted to watch that. Why don't I give it a try? And I was really, really pleased and surprised. And uh, it was just a really nice thing to watch. It was gorgeous. And it had a nice story. Oh, yeah. The CGI in it and uh, the prosthetics and such. Because I I think the part about it, too, is they really captured the uh, uncanny valley thing of the anime. Um, but from the anime, like those characters, you look at them and it's like, this was definitely the actor to play that part. So, so was the girl who played Alita, was she a real person or was she? Okay. Because she looks like she's completely. Okay. Yeah. I was wondering about that. That's an actual actress. They just changed it to have the, you know, the eyes be a little bit bigger, you know, the skin a little too perfect. Okay. So wait a Mm -hmm. minute. This is a movie about a cyborg. I'm just looking through it as we're talking about it. Yeah, okay, I had no idea. Now I'm going to watch it. I'm going to watch guy, it tonight. This guy if finds you... this this really cool part in this wreckage, you know, on the bottom, uh, you know, on Earth, and uh, it seems like it it feels like Blade Runner in a little bit. Yeah, she feels. Okay, like, I just and, like I said, I've never <laughs> heard of it. So this now that I know that it actually might be interesting. So basic, um, okay, <laughs> yeah, basic no spoiler thing. It's a future movie. There is this sky city where the rich and powerful live. And the people that live below it are the ones who gather and collect on the trash that falls from it. And he finds Alita, 
as basically just a spinal cord, upper torso, and a head, and right. puts her into a cyborg body. She's alive, and it's this progression of growth as she finds who she is, and in this world, and relationships with people, and how the world is just so messed up. Right, right. Well, yeah, and there you so, are. And it's, so uh, is it, there was this almost a hint like there was going to be another story. Is there another story after this? Yeah, there is a yeah. uh, rumor. Um, this came out from Digital Spy. Now, with the strikes, this might be delayed, but there is a Battle Angel 2, Alita Battle Angel 2, in the works. Yeah. So um, that would be really cool. All right, well, listen, I stream it. It's on Hulu. And uh, definitely sounds like something interesting. I'm going to check it out now. And until next week, this is. User-Friendly 2.0, keeping you safe on the cutting edge. User-Friendly 2.0 is copyright 2023, User-Friendly Media Group, Inc. All rights reserved. Views expressed on this show are those of the host and not necessarily User-Friendly Media Group, Inc. or this station. Music licensing by BMI. Hosting and technology provided by wearetechnology.com. Listen at theanswerportland.com, userfriendlyshow.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts.